Hi, you're watching Legends of Tabletop, and I'm Cody Goodfellow. Yes, thank you for joining us today, Cody, especially with the uh, the hoops that, that kind of have presented themselves to be jumped through. Um, I know you've been on Legends of Tabletop before, but not under my watch. Um, I'm certain you have some very interesting updates to share with us about what you're up to. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of fantastic things are in the offing. Uh, I've got uh, uh, my first novel with uh, Eraserhead Press coming out uh, in, the, in the new year. Uh, probably my fifth collection coming out in spring from Kingshot Press. Uh, working on uh, numerous short film projects, uh, a couple of feature films in, uh, in the offing. A uh, new magazine project uh, based around the art of Mike Dubish that's probably going to start happening uh, early in the next year. Uh, yeah, loads and loads of fantastic stuff that I can talk about and, and, and loads of uh, 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 hints of, of, of things yet to come about which I must stay mum, but which I can make all kinds of smug faces about. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a really exciting time. A lot of things are happening. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about that I think we're closest to be able to talk about is a anthology um, with uh, PS Press that I'm uh, co-editing with uh, Joe Pulver, uh, mm -hmm. Maps of Dream. And uh, that this one has been a, uh, a long, had a long, slow, difficult gestation period um, because of uh, 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 Joe's, uh, Joe's health problems. And uh, just I think because of the nature of the project, what we were asking for was something very eclectic and very, very different. That is an order of magnitude. I don't know if an order of magnitude stranger, but uh, uh, goes way beyond just the kind of knee jerk Lovecraftian. Hey, this is a mythos story. You're kind of trapped. You have to buy it. Uh, but uh, we wanted to take the concept of the dreamlands, the the of, of a shared reality that uh, a, a common reality that we enter in during liminal states of sleep and, uh, and, and update that, not just, not just take it into the modern era, but, but re-examine the concept of what a shared collective unconscious would look like uh, in the modern era with, uh, with technology and the, the already kind of false collective unconscious that we have with media and uh, and how those things would have a cascading effect on the on 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 that reality and whether we can still whether we still have that reality um, and uh, so we were asking something uh, asking for a, a different kind of challenge from uh, from our authors but uh, the stuff that we've started to get in well we're all with the the, the book is almost completed uh, but the stuff that we've got in is really phenomenal and I think really challenging and uh, represents uh, kind of a new uh, a new mutation of the of, of modern weird fiction. So that's that's just one really exciting thing that's going on. Now I have a question to ask you about that. Right, right. Um, how since you've gotten uh, most of the authors 
anthology, how would it differ from the works that we're already familiar with, such as uh, Kish Johnson's uh, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, and then we've got Brian Lumley's. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, books. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was actually the direction that we specifically asked people not to take. Uh, okay. the- like with uh, with with Lumley's hero and Elden stories, they're sort of these episodic, picaresque fantasies. And uh, Lumley, I think, because he liked heroic fantasy more than weird fantasy. He's he's a very very he's a uh, it in in that cold existential field. He's a, he's a very bold, uh, vigorous voice for human agency. And so you get these these stories where people are able to go do wonderful, fantastic things that. Uh, that uh, that transcend the kind of ordinary lives that they lead, but he kind of left behind that sort of ironic uh, that ironic disparity. We wanted things less like Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and more like the more like the Quest of Irinon, you know, which is a, a very a, a smaller, more ironic story that's more about the journeyer than the journey. Mm-hmm. And uh, we specifically enjoined them not. To don't just show us what cellophane is like with Wi-Fi, you know, cafes and stuff like that, or uh, don't just update those pre-existing myths, but show how the entire universe and that entire relationship would be changed. So they're very much more these surreal dream journeys rather than being a fantastical quest. Um, and elements of fantasy do come in there, but in a sense that really uh, addresses what our relationship to fantasy is. Whether it's whether it's escape and also uh, the uh, uh, the sense of commodification of fantasy, you know, because we have uh, a lot of these sort of pseudo dream states that we can that we can enter as an escape from uh, from waking reality. Whether it's binge watching TV, which I think creates that kind of creates it's a different kind of relationship to if you're watching a film. When you're watching a film, your eyes are entrained in one spot. Things are happening, and so it's sort of like a dream, but you come out of it relatively quickly. If you're if you're binge watching an entire you know eight thirteen episode uh, thing at one sitting, you kind of get completely saturated in this other reality. And so it's an escape, but it's a it's a dictated escape. Uh, same thing with uh, with with video games, uh, Xbox Live, and things like that. You can kind of exist in that other reality for for a long long time but it's not really lighting out for the territories. It's not going to Narnia. It's a corporate playpen. And uh, that was one of the things that we were seeing uh, in a lot of the submissions uh, in one of my own stories that appears in uh, uh, Black Wings 4. uh, I wrote a story called Broken Sleep about a... uh, uh, this uh, a young man who's in a, in a privatized prison and they're doing sleep, sleep deprivation experiments on him uh, in order to try and get him to that state where he's dreaming while still awake and then actually penetrate that and use people as a way of getting into the dreamlands and so that they can uh, start setting up Wi-Fi and malls and cafes and billboards and things and commodify where we all go to sleep because that's really our last escape. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah, and you bring up escape, and uh, I must thank you for mm-hmm. doing such a fantastic job of taking the reader to someplace absolutely far, far away from anything that they may currently be experiencing. Because I enjoyed uh, Repo Shark during. Oh, wow. 
time when I was very ill and just being in my body was just someplace that I did not want to be. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and that gave me a real reprieve for, for a brief moment, you know, just some respite from that. Right. You know, and and I just I just want to thank you uh, beyond this interview. But yeah, I thank you for that. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I mean, that that uh, Repo Shark was a, a unique, weird, weird book, and that the circumstances that drove it uh, were uh, being in a really wonderful place, the most wonderful place on earth, being in Hawaii and having a rotten time. Yeah. Uh, I, I went on a series of family vacations that were uh, the first time I'd ever been to Hawaii. And yet we'd go once or twice a year and it very with, with my, my uh, now, uh, now former wife's family. And it would be a, a, a wonderful lavish vacation in the most gorgeous place on earth. And yet if you're staying at like a Marriott resort and you're going to outlet malls and you're not going to the beach, you're going to the water slide park. Uh, you very quickly come develop this this real weird sense of dislocation. I'm in the ha- I'm in, I'm in the most wonderful place on earth, and yet it feels like I'm in the process. I'm destroying it in order to appreciate it, or I'm enjoying a really creepy ersatz fake Hawaii. And it was that that frustration, and at the same time, a recognition with my own work. I was starting to look at the kinds of things that I was doing with uh, with fiction. And I'd always had a very atavistic, iconoclastic, confrontational streak. I, I, I was frustrated with uh, horror fiction that was that had kind of become comfort fiction, where it, uh, it, it, it's revisiting these tropes that are no longer scary or shocking. And so it's kind of just there's your horror becomes like ugly beanie babies. You're getting the same comforting feeling out of it that uh, that other people get out of you know, whatever they collect and stuff. And so. I wanted to do things that genuinely found an uncalloused nerve and really worked on it. And I was starting to shift in my process just because of frustration with my own life and frustration with my career and ask myself, what do I want to read? Do I really want somebody to get into my ugliest, ugliest, darkest place that I don't want to confront and jump out at me from there? Or do I want to take readers someplace that they, that they want to go? And yet at the same time, bring in that sense of that sense of frustration when you're exactly where you want to be and, and somehow it sucks. Uh, and and to really open up that id impulse, you know, how do you how do you reconcile that or how do you overcome that sense of frustration when you get the thing that society says you're supposed to want to have and it gives you no pleasure. And uh, and, and so. It, it was supposed to be a, uh, a, a romp that really kind of recognizes that sense of that sense of frustration, that sense of that sense of inner inner rage when playing the game and even winning the game uh, it is uh, it feels like an empty dumb show. And so uh, and, and to make it exhilarating to, to, to fill it with this with this wild sense of you know, what if I did that? What if I, what if my id was completely unleashed and went off and, and went off in this really crazy direction? So I, I was really touched by, by what you said about it, that it, that it did take you to a place other and, and, and help you get away from that. Cause that's the purest, that is the purest, simplest sense of escape. And that is the, the purest, simplest gift that you can give somebody else with us, with a story. So uh, Absolutely. thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
oh gosh, what was I what was I going to say before I got off uh, off track with with Repo Shark? Uh, oh. oh man, but yeah, I I do I do like my Kindle. I've been browsing your Amazon page. I do not have that issue of Cemetery Dance that you're in. Oh god. Um, oh my goodness. That story. Well, depending on which story, I think if it's if it wasted, no, not wasted on the young, uh, a drop of ruby. No, 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 that was in third alternative. God, I'm getting old. Uh, burning, burning names was in the issue in 2004, I believe that uh, that was kind of my coming out party because Skip wrote a really nice essay uh, in there that was shortly after I met Skip at a World Horror in Phoenix, uh, and that story is in Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars. Which is sadly out of print. Um, it 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 should be uh, it should be coming back in a new incarnation soon. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I've uh, it, it's scary how long I've been around. Um, anyway, well, no, I was just gonna gonna mention something. I tried to find some memorabilia from Necronomicon '99. Oh God! I was ask you, uh, I remember seeing you at a prayer breakfast in '99. How long have you been doing? Wait, I wasn't at a prayer. It, no, the first prayer breakfast. I don't know. That was an Urzatz Cody Goodfellow. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, the first prayer breakfast that I ever jumped in on was in uh, was in Portland at the Lovecraft Film Festival. Oh, okay. uh, like two thousand seven or eight. Uh, Okay. I delivered, yeah, I delivered an address alongside Bob Price, and then I think the following year, um, Bob had some major problems with hay fever uh, uh, here, and so because of allergies, I jumped in and did the uh, opening and closing blessing and uh, and uh, and stuff like that. So yeah, I wasn't wasn't involved until about about two thousand six or two thousand seven. Oh okay. Yeah, and then I kind of hide. I'm glad I didn't find anything because you wouldn't have been in it. Okay. Yeah. No. So the, yeah, that was that was uh, somewhere in apocrypha. But if I can retroactively be doing these, and and have yeah. done, if it's expanding at both ends, then that's that's a wonderful thing. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But uh, yeah, just very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, um, I know this does not involve your writing career, but um, tell me about the experience of being an extra on American Horror Story. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, yeah, I had gotten, I was, uh, living in Los Angeles, uh, and, uh, I, I got a SAG card through a series of, of, of weird serendipitous, uh, uh, events. Basically I was on a, I, I, play, I was in a short film and I had, uh, two lines and I was holding a newspaper in front of my face and they looped my dialogue. So you don't see my face, you just see my hand, but it was a SAG eligible, uh, film. So I got a letter and uh, I, I joined SAG and I started doing background work through central casting. And I got a, a whole bunch of work. And because of the way I looked at the time, I mostly played homeless people and junkies. And I'm in about five or six shows that were shot last year wearing the same outfit. So my, I, I kind of play the same character on a, on a bunch of different things. Um, I'm on that makes the a lot of sense because yeah. I remember seeing you at uh, Necro 24. Was it? No, it was 2015, I think. 2015. And yeah, and and the way that you were huddled down on the ground at first, I thought you were <laughs> a homeless person. Yeah, you know? yeah, I earned more money then than uh, than off of book sales that weekend. 
Wow. So yeah, uh, I. Uh, but yeah, for American Horror Story, uh, I uh, wasn't. I was an extra. This was for the the uh, uh, not not cult. Uh, it's the the Roanoke show. I did a. Uh, I, I was playing one of the one of the population of uh, of, of settler ghosts, and uh, it was it was probably the best best summer job I've ever had because we did about thirty days of shooting, and some some days they would just they would just feed you and 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 keep you on tap, and then you'd come up for like one hour. And then they'd have you come back down for another couple of hours until they were sure they wouldn't need you. And then they'd send you home. Um, but uh, it was uh, that was the most involved I've ever been with any uh, with any show. I uh, got to work with Kathy Bates, uh, who was marvelous, just really, really wonderful, humble, uh, uh, very dedicated. Uh, and, uh, and 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 the rest of the cast and crew. And they had uh they they'd worked on uh, they'd worked on it from season to season and so they really were tight like a family and very confident and thus they treated us really well uh it was uh it was a fun experience it was also kind of frustrating uh just to give you a for example of how the hawaii thing can screw up your life uh they would call you on friday and tell you or ask you what your availability is for the following week and uh and and once they they called me or they called me and and uh, and and said they weren't going to have any shooting for the following week and so uh, I, uh, I I went to Hawaii with my wife's family and I was literally picking up my luggage at the turnaround and they call and ask hey can you come in tomorrow Kathy's going to be cutting everybody's throats well this was the thing that we had been building up to all summer the the really exciting the really exciting day and yeah I've never I don't know if anybody's ever been so pissed off to find themselves in Hawaii. Uh, as I was right then, because so I was like, "You swore you're not gonna do it," and now I'm I, I want to go home. Uh, so, yeah, one of my friends called from the set, and he's like, "Yeah, they're handing out poison apples. Oh, you bit all our throats." And that was the same week. The, the the week that I wasn't there was the week that they shot on on another set. We were shooting in Malibu Canyon all year. That's why it looks so much like North Carolina. Uh, but uh, we were shooting. Uh, uh, they were shooting on another location that week when I wasn't there. And that was the week that the pictures of the tree with Croatoan carved into it leaked out. And according to TMZ, it was, it was, they were saying it was a background actor. So I called and I asked my PA, I'm like, okay, so, you know, I'm not the guy who did it. Cause I'm the only guy who wasn't there. And they're like, oh yeah. Um, yeah. We're sorry about that. That uh, we know it wasn't any of you guys. So it was an engineered leak that they were, they said, yeah, oh, oh, it was a, it was an irresponsible background actor and that person's been disciplined or something. But it was, it was funny being inside that at the time because it was something that they leaked. It was, it was, it was strategic and it made sense because it was a good way to, uh, to get it out. But the sense that it had to be some sort of weird scandal, because those are the kinds of things when you're on set, they tell you, don't take pictures. Don't, you know, to, keep keep stuff to yourself don't post it on facebook and everything because uh, if you do that yeah you're going to get ruined and they're going to call central casting you go, yeah this guy gave away the store uh but it was something that they were doing to promote the show at the same time it's it's, it's I mean, yeah of course it's all very weird and surreal uh when uh they had uh they had a a, a big nude scene um and uh and, and nude scenes i mean uh, there's, of course, it, it's it's really prickly and it's a sensitive issue and stuff like that. And so they they take all kinds of precautions with it. 
But uh, yeah, if you're a background actor, all nudity, all nudity means is you're getting triple time. Uh, I yeah, the, my my big heartbreak was that I I started doing background work about two weeks after they after they wrapped shooting for Westworld because everybody that I was on shows with, uh, you know, on the beard circuit, whether you're playing homeless guys or or uh, or medieval guys, uh, you know. Uh, Everybody that I talked to who had a bigger beard than me had been on Westworld. And they were like, hey, yeah, who are you? They didn't even ask, were you on Westworld? They were like, who were you on Westworld? Did you get, did you get naked time? Because, uh, yeah, all those people standing around, stand, uh, the reason why that show was so expensive, it wasn't the special effects or the expansive cast or the size or anything. It's because there's huge crowds of naked extras just standing around making, you know, 100 bucks an hour. Uh and so it was. It was really weird being on the on the uh, in the waiting area at uh, at American Horror Story. The days when they were where they were doing new shoots because they'd have like two dozen uh, uh, people come in uh, just with robes on, and half of them were really exhilarated. A few of them were like really disturbed and weirded out because oh, I was standing around naked. But uh, it's it's uh, it's such a weird experience because a lot of the a lot of the guys that weren't naked that were just like background were going. Hey, there's naked time to be had. I'll drop trial. <laughs> so people's attitudes to it are 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 are, are really fascinating. Um, and of course, it's a really really surreal experience. But uh, on on that show, we had no idea what the hell was going on, uh, what we were what we were making, what the you know how the thing worked out. Uh, we were we were watching you know what little we were seeing of the thing and trying to piece it together. And by the end of it, we were like. I don't think we're the real ghosts. I think there's a whole other crowd of guys wearing our costumes when we're not here <laughs> playing the other, uh, playing the other ghosts. And there's, yeah, there's some sort of, some sort of twist going on, but oh, it, it's, it's weird being involved in something that big where nobody really knows what's going on any more than, you know, a private or a Sergeant at, uh, at Normandy wouldn't understand what the big picture was. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when there's the, especially from one week to the next, we'd be shooting, you know, the uh, different episodes from one day to the next and things like that. And so different episodes would have different directors attached. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, you have the same army, but you, you show up to, you show up to fight a campaign and there's a different general and he's got different notes and a different idea of what war looks like. Oh, and, uh, and sometimes the, sometimes the different general, you, you play the whole game the whole day trying to figure out who's actually the, the director. Uh, because if you hear somebody giving you instructions, you can be damn sure that's not the director. Uh, it's probably the second assistant director, maybe the first assistant director. Uh, but uh, the difference can be remarkable. One week we worked on a, on a show where uh, uh, Jennifer Lynch was the director, David Lynch's daughter. Oh and, and she was completely, completely different. She was very hands-on. She went around and introduced herself. And at the end of the day, she still remembered our names because when she was, when she was, when she was doing, you know, arranging a scene, she'd holler from the back end of the room, Cody, can you take two steps closer to Kathy? That's fantastic. You're amazing, dear. And no director ever talks directly to the, to the, uh, to the auxiliary talent, let alone remembers their names at the end of the day. Um, and so how different it can be in spite of, you know, it being a whole bunch of different people. I think that was just, it would be the difference between, you know, Patton, because Patton would get out there and actually uh, actually talk to the troops and slap yes. them. Uh, uh, Jennifer didn't slap anybody, but uh, it was it was a remarkable remarkable experience. Um, and I, from what I understand, I only watched like the first three episodes of the of the program 
from what I understand from people that are on that, uh, that have, have watched the whole thing, uh, there's like two or three shots where there's kind of a gray, mushy uh, guy in the background who might be me. <laughs> no, I just had to ask you about that because I know that we are, we are, we do have some audience members in the wings from mm -hmm. the Horror Everything group. I just mm -hmm. wanted to shout out to those guys. Hey. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, caring for your mountain of hair in glow. Right. Is oh, there any, anything that you had done to care for the mountain of hair that you had around you in oh. that sort of glow? Uh, no, I mean, I, I had, my hair was about as long as my beard at the time. Um, I kept it the same look for, uh, uh, for American horror story. Uh, but I was fast reaching that point where my hair was thinning on top. And so that the hair around the sides, it was just accentuating that. So I, I didn't, before I got into Gallagher or evil clown territory, I elected to cut it. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, on the, on the glow set, uh, and that I, I only worked on that for uh, for for two days shooting uh, for the, the one scene. I think it's in episode eight. Um, and that they, they just they just teased it out a lot. Uh, I think that was the last thing I did before I cut my hair that or uh, I, I was also on a show called Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History, which I don't think is aired yet. Um, and that uh, was, I, I think, for like the, the learning channel or something. And I think it's a special, but I played an abolitionist in that. Uh on on glow, uh, yeah, it was just they they went over my hair a couple times, and there was a lady who would come by and go, "You're sweating off your dirt," and and she would layer on layer on new dirt on me. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was mostly just uh, just naturalness in two days, not washing it. Oh wow, um, gosh, I'm I'm just been sitting here enjoying this wonderful coffee and uh -huh. I'm going to interject for just a brief moment with a word from our sponsors here at Legends of Tabletop. We do have wonderful, wonderful sponsors. We love you guys. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to Birds of a Feather Coffee Company who roasts their unique craft coffees and spatches. It's fresh. You know, their signature blends showcase the amazing breadth and depth of flavors that coffee has to offer. The Night Owl blend, which is what I currently use, for instance, is a rich, deep cup of coffee with notes of smooth caramel, decadent cocoa, and bittersweet molasses with just a touch of acidity to cleanse the palate so you're ready for your next sip. Check out all of the Bird's Coffees and order now at birdscoffeecompany.com. There's a brew for everybody at birdscoffeecompany.com. And you can get a 10% discount for a limited time with the code LEGENDS10 at checkout. And check out the Legends Legendary Brew as well. So thank you for your time. Um, all right. Yeah. So. Uh, let's see. I'm I'm just looking at all of the wonderful chat books oh, that, that I've got uh -huh. for you, and then we've got I I've got monstrous to check out. You're in that anthology, and I'm just gonna go through my library of stuff from you. Right I've on. got Rapture of the Deep. Rapture of the Deep. Yes, that that collects my my best uh, Lovecraftian mythos fiction. This is inscribed to Joe. How'd you end up with that? You, you picked it. I think Joe ended up with the one inscribed to me. 
oh golly, <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be a difficult exchange to transact. But uh, I know we we have not, so I think we're both happy with that. And I believe you're in Edge of Sundown. I am. Yeah, yeah. I have oh. a Western in there. I have a. I've, I've written some. Yeah, I'm in there. Uh, I have a story called Blind Item. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's a sort of new take on undead fiction with uh, uh, a paparazzo and uh, a, 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 a a very thinly fictionalized uh, portrait of a uh, very troubled uh, uh, celebrity. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've 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 been in a lot of stuff. Uh, in oh yes. I kind of did everything backwards. So I, I wrote my first three novels before I had uh, uh, any really fiction sales or short fiction sales. Oh, so you did the novel thing first? Yes. Yes. I had uh, ideas for novels, but uh, could not seem to get my head around the short story game. I, I, I had a, a couple of short stories that I had, that I had written, but couldn't market. Um, in 2003, I took a UCSD extension class with uh, Nancy Holder, an excellent writer, amazing teacher, uh, and uh, somehow something there, something there clicked, and I was able to figure out how to uh, how to get how to how to distill the kinds of things that fascinate me uh, in small enough in small enough bite sized chunks uh, and. Coming out of coming out of there, a couple of stories that I wrote from there, uh, uh, "Burning Names" was uh, my my first appearance in Cemetery Dance, and uh, "A Drop of Ruby," which appeared in uh, Third Alternative, which became Black Static right after that. Uh, so yeah, appearance? after the Cemetery Dance, that sorry, your first appearance was in Cemetery Dance. Uh, well, first professional appearance. I had a couple of stories that appeared in, you know, sort of lamentable kind of semi-pro, to, to put it generously, uh, publications. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the, the first thing that probably anybody would have come across uh, in, in 2004 uh, was there. But I, my first sale was uh, a role-playing game guide uh, to Chaosium in 1995, they didn't end up putting it out till 2006. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Uh, that whole transaction kind of left me rather mistrustful and, uh, and, and paranoid, frankly. Um, and so I, uh, I self-published my first novel uh, without shopping it around. Wow. Uh, just because I wanted to put the thing out exactly as, as, uh, as, I, as I saw it being. And I was I was frustrated enough at that point with with trying to get uh, get into publishing and trying to find a, a home for the kind of stories that I wanted to tell that, uh, yeah, self-publishing seemed like a good idea and not just going through like Create Space or, or Publish America or any of the other uh, things that were around then. But uh, we actually went to an offset printer and, and you know, paid for 2,500 copies of the first book. And uh, we weren't up. Uh, unsurprisingly weren't able to get reviews for it anywhere and uh but it was the first of two so then when we did start to get some reviews and reader reaction it was very small but all of it was where the hell's the second book so we went all in and put out the second book and it really wanted to be a trilogy so the second book was nearly twice as long as the first uh and of course you know if there's one thing people don't want to read 
or want to read less than a, a novel by somebody they've never heard of with nothing to recommend it. It's two books by somebody they've never heard of that they uh, that nobody's recommended. So it was it you know we we learned the hard way that uh, uh, self publishing isn't really the answer to those kinds of questions. If the frustration is I can't find a market for my work, self publishing it doesn't create the market. It just creates the work. Uh, and so, yeah, having done those two books, then I decided to actually start doing the shoe leather work and going to classes, going to conventions. I went to World Horror in 2004 with, uh, with that book and with uh, Chapbook, which you held up a moment ago, uh, uh, In the Shadow of Swords. Ah, yes. Is, is the one I haven't got to yet. Yeah, it's, it's a prequel to Radiant Dawn and Ravenous Dusk. And uh, it's about a United Nations weapons inspection team uh, in, uh, in Iraq searching for uh, weapons of mass destruction, and they inadvertently come across the Garden of Eden. And uh, that was a, a, a thing that I, I, I wrote and, and slapped together at Kinko's, uh, the, the cover art I did just using Dover clip art in Photoshop, in order to have something as a calling card that I could actually give somebody that I might be able to cozen them into actually reading. And so I gave one of those to John Skip uh, when I met him at World Horror in Phoenix, and he read it on the plane. He was really impressed by it. Uh, he asked for more, and so he ended up reading Radiant Dawn and Ravenous Dusk, which are a huge departure from any kind of thing that Skip would normally be into. Uh, and after that, we became good friends. And based on that mutual respect for each other's work, I'd grown up reading splatterpunk stuff and loved not just the work that Skip Inspector and Dave Scow and Brian Hodge and and, uh, and and that whole crew had done at the time, but the way that they changed how authors relate to uh, relate to a readership. They they brought in a lot of the cinematic uh, cinematic stuff in their work, but they brought in a rock star sensibility to how they related to their to uh, to their readership. They weren't really these kind of shadowy numinal half real figures that authors have really been up to that time. I mean, as a, as an author, you still kind of have more image control than a lot of other people because you're not putting yourself out there as a performer necessarily, or you have the option of not doing that. You can still be just this shadowy silhouette figure who puts out these amazing works and you can leave people to kind of speculate uh, what that person is like. Uh, Having grown up, amazing works. <laughs> how, yeah. how did working with an artist to get this out? How did that differ from text only? Oh, it's 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 a world of difference. I would say it's it's an entirely different animal from writing prose. It's actually everything I always wanted to do with writing film. Mm -hmm. uh, I had gone to, I, I went to UCLA in order to study film production. And literally the day that I, uh, my first day on campus, they did completely did away with the undergraduate film production major. Uh, and my experiences in, in Hollywood and, and, and at UCLA had kind of really, really showed me that if I wanted to have any creative control over the kind of thing that I did, I should just go into prose. And, uh, so I've always approached film very cautiously and I've gotten burned over and over again with putting a lot of heart into a project and try to get it off the ground and nothing happens. Uh, so with comics, you have the ability to create an entire visual world, but you, it, you're dealing with the, with the, with just with that artist. And so you can completely 
you still have that that interaction and still have being able to see the visual thing uh, completely take you take your breath away when you actually finally see it. But it's not a question of hundreds of people and millions of dollars, and so you can you can still kind of tinker with that with that world. Uh, I love it. I love collaboration. I love uh, I love uh, being surprised by things in your own work when they come back at you, uh, and collaborating with somebody who has complementary skills uh, and and skills that are in many ways indistinguishable from magic is. Uh, is a wonderful way of, of, of doing that because uh, you write something and then and then he draws it and it, and shows it to you and it's so much weirder that what, than what you did uh, or the, than how than how you'd envisioned it that it it uh, you get inspiration within that inspiration. Um, Mike had illustrated a number of my projects before uh, uh, the chapel that you held up, the electric eye, uh, was one of the earlier things that we'd done. And in that he did, yeah, he did illustrations for a prose piece. Uh, and uh, he also did illustrations for my book, All Monster Action, which is recently reissued. I don't know if you got that. Uh, uh, All Monster Action. I don't think you have the one that Dubish did the cover for. You have no. a different version of the new one. I, I do have a different version of the new one. Right. And the new one is also graphically impressive as Thank well. I love the cover job that was done on that. That was very impressive. And it's fascinating to me how these, how people relate to and, and, and how people grab these things. I, I grew up very much uh, in love with, with, with comics and, 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 and very lurid sorted graphics and things. And so I'm still a sucker for a great illustrative cover. Um, but I also still wear t-shirts with graphics on them. Which I understand, kind of, uh, it kind of sends out sends out a message that you're you're an immature person. Uh, so, so the 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 you know when we put out all monster action, it had this really insane cover with monsters tearing ass on it. It's a depiction of the climax. And when I got the sketch art from from Mike for that, I was still in the process of finishing that story, and so it turned into an arms race where he made the thing so much weirder than I thought it was going to be. So I went back and jammed more stuff in there and then he added more stuff in there. And so it was mutating and, 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 and cooking and the proteins were kind of uh, uh, synthesizing whole new proteins as it was developing. And, uh, and yet uh, readers didn't seem to, didn't seem to grasp, grasp that excitement. And then fast forward a couple of years, and with the new edition, uh, rather than rather than use the old cover, um, I let, uh, Michael Kazepis uh, came up with the concept and brought it to Matthew Rivert. Matthew Rivert is an incredible graphic designer. I think uh, he's the Chip Kid of, uh, of of Bizarro and indie fiction right now because he's really kind of changed changed the game in how the in how people relate to that aesthetic. He's done some images that, rather than depict something that's inside the book, give you the feel of what the book is like. And so I, I love how the cover of that is, you know, it's a depiction of a Betamax cover with the hand lettering on it. And I still have some old Betamax tapes exactly like that from when, you know, uh, when you, you tape weird things off of TV that otherwise you'd never see again, and then you'd share them with your friends and stuff. And so it captures that vibe. It captures that sitting under the blankets uh, with a flashlight, eating Pop Rocks and reading comic books kind of vibe, I think better than the illustrative fiction did. And, and readers seem to seem to as well, because readers are picking up on it 
and getting and appreciating what's in it a lot better. And I wonder whether it's whether a graphical versus an illustrative cover, uh, whether the readers relate to it themselves or whether uh, it, it passes the would I be embarrassed to be seen reading this on a subway test? Ah. You know, because if you're reading something that has monsters on it, it's like you're wearing a T-shirt that has uh, that has, you know, snorks or, or, or something, something campy on it. It kind of advertises that you're that you're a campy person, but in somehow it, it's it's a sinister button down or Aloha shirt or something rather than rather than a cheesy T-shirt. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's it, it's it's funky. I, I'm trying to be less. I'm trying to be more open to uh, finding out what the reader wants rather than going, I know what you want because I've done that and fallen on my face more than enough times over the years. So uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's fascinating how people pick up the things, the, the, the things that are basically portals to another world that you're going to go into. Uh, Mike also did the cover for Repo Shark. Uh, which which I really love, and I which I think perfectly captures that vibe of 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 this beautiful place that you're destroying by enjoying it. And uh, uh, readers have been kind of slow to pick it up. The graphic didn't seem to graphic didn't seem to uh, really fire people's imagination so much as the concept did. And so it's taken it's taken longer for people to respond to it. Uh, mystery meat as well. Uh, we did this really amazing, lavish, gnarly kind of challenging cover that we thought would, uh, would speak to readers who have a nostalgic love of horror anthology comics going back to the EC, uh, EC stuff like, uh, Crypt of Terror and, and Tales from the Crypt. Uh, up through the underground it, 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 horror it, it, comics. Uh huh. Right, right. Well, it's and 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 yeah, because it has we have horror mascots in there and stuff. We also were riffing on the underground horror comics from the seventies, like Skull and Slow Death, Eco Funnies and stuff, because those took the 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 kind of corny horror anthology thing with a mascot narrating and stuff, but they took it into a world of real horror. And so you know, uh, Slow Death, Eco Funnies would do special issues each one. You know, one on cancer, one on air pollution, one on Greenpeace and, and species extinction and stuff. And they try they use those very sordid tropes to try and examine. Look, this is the real real world horrors that that we're all perpetuating. We're all the crypt keeper. Uh, and so we were we we're kind of trying to balance that. And I think it, it's a really rarefied taste. It's not something everybody can get into, but uh, it, it's it's one of those things that when you find the right people who, who appreciate that, yeah, it's, it's like fresh blood to them or new batteries. So yeah, yeah fun stuff. Um, yeah. Speaking of, of punks and you having the experience of, uh, Oh, maybe I should turn myself. Away. Hmm? There we go. Yeah. Um, with the experience of you writing for an artist with an artist together, right. Right. Um, I, I had just discovered this and the tale is in the all monster action that is coming out right uh, from you the uh, also ha- you've you've played both sides of this coin having written a story that is in an anthology uh, for Mike Mignola's Hellboy right right um, I've been lucky enough working with Skip 
uh, and an editor, uh, primarily an uh, amazing editor uh, named Jeff Connor, uh, to do a number of tie-in things uh, and, and to get to play uh, in other people's worlds. Uh, Hellboy was was most definitely uh, my favorite of those. Uh, uh, Chris Golden uh, was doing this uh, series of anthologies. He did uh, odd jobs, uh, odder jobs, and oddest jobs. And so we ended. We we had a story in Oddest Jobs, and uh, it was you know I, we took that mandate very, very seriously. Uh, we wanted to do you know the weirdest conceivable thing that still was within that world of folklore. And so we we had a story where uh, Hellboy and Abe Sapien, and uh, we we were allowed to pick any era. And so we picked. We wanted to pick that sweet spot, like right after. Uh, the Conqueror Worm, where uh, you had uh, uh, Hellboy was still in the group, and Abe Sapien was in the group, and Roger and Liz Sherman, and they had jetpacks. Uh, there was one. Uh, I, I think there's a brief interlude in in the Conqueror Worm, um, and I may be mistaken. Could be Wake the Devil, uh, where Hellboy's got a jetpack, uh, kind of like the Rocketeer. And so we did that stuff, and we have the BPRD fighting eco terrorists who are trying to reunite uh, Typhon and Echidna. The two, uh, patri- the the patriarch and matriarch of all of the monsters in Greek mythology. Congrats to you for making me. Uh, oh God, I reacted out loud. Ah, I said something, and and then my husband started to panic. Like, what's wrong? It's like right. nothing. I'm just reading. Right. <laughs> and that's from that story. Oh, phenomenal. phenomenal. Yeah, that was last night. So Yeah, and we, we uh, yeah, so we had a ball writing that story. We actually made Chris Golden kind of uneasy with, you know, some of the stuff that we put in there. And uh, I, we had to remind him more than more than once. You said oddest jobs, man. So come on, uh, let us let us do the do the work that we're that we're here to do. And uh, they they let us do it. And more than that, when I came back to them about reprinting the story. Uh, and this is one of the amazing, unique things about about Dark Horse that I think sets them apart from just about every other company. Every other company, understandably, when you write something for them, a lot of times it's work for hire. Even if even if it's not, they're still very prickly about letting you reprint it because they want to own their things. Um, uh, Dark Horse uh, is uniquely respectful of the artist. Uh, I con- contacted them and. Uh, they were, they said, yeah, we don't have a problem with it. Uh, uh, and we commissioned new art for it. So Mike did two new pieces of Hellboy art, uh, uh, to go along with the story, uh, which are, which are just lovely. And they said, just, just make sure that you insert the, insert the legal stuff that, that credits, uh, asserts that it's Mike Mignola's universe, but you're welcome to, you're welcome to do it. And uh, yeah, I absolutely love that and love them. And if they're listening, they should call me because uh, I want I, I need work. Um, but uh, I I done a story for um, uh, uh, MySpace Dark Horse Presents. Um, MySpace being a social media platform that preexisted before Facebook, uh, but was essentially the same thing but crappier. Uh, and uh, they let uh, it was a story that uh, eight piece eight page story uh, called New Meat. Uh, which is is was the seed that became mystery meat and uh, artist named Jeff Ramister uh, drew the eight page piece, which I think you can still find online. And when I asked them about reprinting it, uh, the the contract terms pretty much dictate that the story belongs to 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 Jeff and 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 me. So I contacted Jeff about a reprint, 
and uh, and so that story appears in not in the mystery meat book itself, but in um, Cowboy Cow's uh, family feedback uh, coloring and activity book, which is a uh, uh, ancillary bonus item uh, that we made for our Kickstarter backers, and uh, it so we were able to reprint the eight page uh, Jeff Lamister story. Uh, uh, which is, is, is really cool. Uh, a lot of comic companies won't let you do, won't let you play with their toys, uh, let alone take, take the toys home with you. So golly, wait, what? <laughs> wait, no, um, I just saw a text message. Is, is that for me? Do what? I just saw a text message. Is I must depart and I am so thankful. Is it you? Yeah, I am. I I am. I am very, very thankful for the time that you've taken to be here with me today. Sure. Uh, to speak with me about the things that you have done and what you are up to. I. Where can we find all monster action? Uh, you can find that at kingshotpress.com. And they've got a variety of holiday specials going on right now. It's right now just in the in a dead tree version. Uh, there should be a new ebook version up uh, by mid December. Uh, they can also find it on Amazon if they want to make the richest man in the world richer. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I would go look for King Shot Press. And if you're interested in Mystery Me, that is available through Comixology. There's a digital awesome. version of that. Yeah. That is wonderful, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Cody. Absolutely. And I, I wish you an awesome day. Thank you. You too. And thank you so much, mm -hmm. and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Yeah, let's do it. I'll try to think of something else to say. Awesome. Thank you. As <laughs> always, right. take care, everyone. All right. Be well and drink more coffee. Yes. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.